Hello, my name is Juan de Castro and you're listening to Making Risk Flow. Every episode, I sit down with my industry-leading guests to demystify digital risk flows, share practical knowledge, and help you use them to unlock scalability in commercial insurance. In this first episode of Season 5 of Making Risk Flow, I had the opportunity to chat with Andrew Horton, Group CEO at QBE. Andrew is one of the most respected global insurance leaders, having led Beasley for more than 12 years and now leading QBE. In this episode, we talk about his transition from a specialist insurer to a global general insurance one, about the pillars of his strategy at QBE, and we deep dive into his views on areas such as innovation or talent. Hope you enjoy it. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today for this new episode. I'm really excited to talk to you about all things QBE and your career and how you see the industry. So thank you for joining. No, it's great to be here. Can you start with a brief introduction of your background and your current role? Yeah, sure. I won't go back until I was five years old. But in effect, very briefly, I trained as an accountant. I then joined banks. So I was in banking for about 15 years. And then in 2003, I became the CFO of Beasley. Beasley was a relatively small insurance company that just floated on the UK stock exchange. I was the CFO of Beasley for five years. And then in 2008, I was very fortunate to become the CEO of Beasley. And I did that for 12 to 13 years. And then I joined GBE shortly after that to become the CEO, moving from London to Australia. Well, quite an impressive career, but obviously, specifically in insurance, you've been, as you said, with Beasley and now with QBE. So Beasley being probably one of the most respected specialty insurers in London, now QBE, a global general insurance company. How was the transition from Beasley to QBE? <laughs> sure. I guess the hardest transition I've had in my career was actually moving from banking to insurance, because just moving to insurance, you find some reason we use a language that nobody else in the world uses. So it's a lot of jargon. But the transition from one insurance company to another, from that point of view, was relatively straightforward. And there were a lot of quite a lot of similarities. QBE is quite specialist in what it does. It's mainly a commercial insurer, so that had some similarity. QB has more depth of product and a larger geographic spread. And of course, QB, there are 13,000 of us and somewhat fewer at Beasley. And I try and meet as many people as possible. So it's more challenging for me over the past few years. I've tried to get it out and about in the QBE world, meeting as many people as possible, because I really like the ideas that our people come up with. So the major difference is just the scale of it, as you say, and the size of it, which means we can compete against many other global insurers. We can offer almost every line of insurance or PNC insurance to everyone in the commercial sector. So that's fun and exciting. Yeah. So how does a large insurer like QB compete? I guess when you joined, I mean, it was an already very successful insurer. I'm sure you set your own vision and strategy for QB. What are the two or three things that differentiate that you want QB to be known for? Yeah, I think it's a good point. So you're right. What we did was when I joined, some CEOs come in and do this 100-day view and come up with a completely different strategy for the company and change a lot of people. The good news is that I didn't really need to do that. QB was performing pretty well in most parts of its world. And we just came up with a new purpose regarding giving resilience, a more resilient future for our stakeholders. Then we came up with a new vision around being the most consistent and innovative risk partner, underpinned it with key six key areas, one that we're going to look at. People and culture being completely foundational. 
how do we ensure we recruit and attain the, the greatest people, have a really good culture, and if you want to stay with us for a long period of time. Then modernization, really appropriate to your company. How do we actually modernize the industry and change the way we do things? How do we actually bring the enterprise together, leverage the skills of the overall group? Because we're running three relatively separate geographic divisions, being North America, international run out of London, and what we call Australia Pacific run out of Sydney. Portfolio optimization, how do we get the best balance of the book? And then growth, how do we focus on growth? So this purpose, vision, six key priorities supporting the purpose and vision. And over the past two years, we launched that just under two years ago. The organization rallied around those. It is giving us this consistency of approach across the three geographic divisions. And the one about bringing the enterprise together means we're leveraging the skills of the group. And what I found at QBE was really enthusiastic people who've got loads of expertise. And our aim is to how do how do we make the most of that, the benefit of our clients, brokers, and all other stakeholders. It's really important to us about getting this consistency across the group. Yeah, so let's actually deep dive into that consistency, right? Which is part of your vision that you just described, because you know, I also work in other industries before joining insurance, and there are, I think, mixed views about the concept of consistency, right? So some readers would say, it's all about consistency, which is, I think, your vision at QB. Some others will say, well, an insurer is all about kind of adapting to the different cycles and growing and shrinking as the market evolves. So, which I can see merits to both. So, what do you mean by consistency and why do you think it's important? Yeah, sure. Hey, we could have a really long debate over who drives the cycle. So, why is the buying the insurance product inconsistent in itself? Because you're right, prices for some lines go up a lot and then they come down a lot. And they're not like any other PL line. If you're the CFO of a company, when you're buying insurance, you don't really know next year whether it's going to go up in line with inflation, double inflation, treble inflation, or go up fall. So what we're trying to do around consistency is consistency of appetite. So we're in a certain lines of business. Let's work with our clients through the cycle. Because you see the insurance increase sometimes pulling back quite a lot and then diving in quite a lot. New entrants come in, then they pull out. We're trying to be consistent. We're in this line of business, in this geography. Let's be consistently in it. Let's see if we can address that consistency of price a bit more. So we're less volatile in terms of price. That's hard to do, really hard to do, because the market in certain lines, the prices moves up and down. Let's treat our people consistently. We've got a good culture. We've got a good environment for people. Let's be very consistent because sometimes companies can adjust that and people will get happy or unhappy depending on how companies change. How are Shareholders actually see us ultimately giving a pretty consistent return. So if we get everything right, get the building blocks right, we, our aim is to give a less volatile return. Knowing we're in insurance, there's always going to be some inherent volatility in our returns. And just consistency, how we deal with other stakeholders. So long-term relationships are really important of those people we deal with who support the company. And they can be our broker partners, they can be TPAs on the claims front, they can be people who supply things to the company. Just consistency. It was interesting when we debated it, because some people thought the word consistency was too boring, having a vision, that it needed to be something more exciting. But if you look at the insurance industry, it's generally not a consistent industry. So I think it's quite an exciting thing to aspire to be. And it sort of differentiates ourselves against others. Most others don't say it. They have this presumption that it is assumed that, of course, we're trying to be consistent. And that consistency of appetite and pricing, which is one of the first ones you mentioned, obviously, I mean, we know that's what brokers often demand, right? Is just let me know what type of business or what type of risks QB 
is in the market for. But obviously, then, will you not miss an opportunity sometimes? And then, will it will force you to stay in some type of risk or lines of business in other side parts of the cycle where it's less profitable? Or are you taking more of the longer term approach or view? You're exactly right. So it's a question of how much you've got to flex, depending on whether the market's heavily buoyant or less buoyant. So we've got to flex. But let's look at our core clients and let's be really consistent to a core set of clients as far as we can. I appreciate it's hard to do because if we're consistent and everybody else is inconsistent, at some point, the price is going to be half what we have and we'll end up with no business. And at other points, people are going to be charging double what we have and we'll have every single bit of business in the world. So I appreciate when you, we've got to work within the market we're operating in. Let's just go out there. This is our aim to be in these lines of business across cycle. Our aim is to support our key broker partners and clients across cycle. Our aim is to be consistent in how we pay claims. People are going to pick up exceptions the whole time, and it's hard to achieve. But I think it's a noble aim to have. Yeah, but I was funny, obviously. I was playing a bit of devil's advocate. But, but you're, you're totally right. And I think if I look at the insurance industry, I think as a whole, it's becoming or it's trying to become more consistent and reduce that volatility. You see it. I mean, you look at it from a, as you said, from a pricing perspective, the concept of portfolio underwriting is to try to avoid kind of the volatility of single risks and look for portfolio. And you're saying, okay, it's also about removing that volatility over time, right? Which is like being more consistent, letting the brokers know what your appetite is. It's an odd industry in a way because nobody wants the volatility in price and yet it's there. So the brokers don't want it, the insurers don't want it, and the clients certainly don't want it. The people who buy it, but it's there. And we may be one of the most volatile in terms of price of any other thing that anybody ever buys. It's odd that nobody wants it, and yet we have it. It's a, it's a very interesting industry from that point of view. Obviously, it's been there for decades, if not centuries. So it's, it's not easy to remove, and I'm not sure QBE by itself is going to be able to remove it, but it's something I think we should aim for. Yeah. And it's probably a heritage of, you know, the old London market, you know, way. So, I mean, like with very large risks, it might make more sense to be slightly more volatile or less consistent. But in the more general insurance market, it's probably less, makes slightly less sense. Yeah. It's an interesting point now because I think with the more complex risks, the buyers appreciate the value of insurance more and therefore they are willing to pay the right price for it on a more consistent basis. I think as it becomes more generic and more commoditized. And people are buying it more as a commodity and they'll just take whatever the going price is. Definitely. And your second part of the vision was about being the most innovative or driving innovation. Like, How do you look at innovation in QB? I think it's a really exciting thing to do because often the industry is criticized if we don't step up and take on new risks. I mean, obviously, that's definitely not true because we can talk about the cyber market. We can talk about the DNO market prior to that. We do take on new risks as an industry. And I'm trying to get the innovation being, let's think about new risks. Human beings, we're very good at creating new risks, and the insurance industry, to be relevant, needs to step up to the challenge of doing that. And the beauty about the insurance industry, if someone creates a new risk, we can atomize it. We can share it between ourselves. We can reinsure it out. So we don't need to bet the whole company on this new risk. We can atomize the structure's already there. So it's that part of it. The other more important part of innovation is just looking for the small innovations the whole time, this continual improvement, empowering our people if they're seeing a process they can enhance a product, they can look at a system, and we actually empower our people to just make those changes for the better. So we spend a reasonable amount of time on this small innovation, empowering people. Please, when if you're seeing something you can improve, you are empowered to improve it, change it. And then we're also looking at these new product launches. 
I think too many people think of innovation only in terms of new products, and they're waiting for someone to design the new product that's going to deliver billions of dollars of premium to the insurance market and us over the few years. And I'm trying to get people away from that to some extent, because people get frightened and nervous about that and think that's what innovation is all about. But many innovations are much smaller, but maybe more impactful than even that. And also that smaller continuous innovation is harder to achieve, right? Because these big new products, you can just have a small team working on that. They know that's their focus. Whereas this small incremental innovation, you, you require almost the whole organization to have that mindset. So what do you think are the enablers for that? So how do you signal at QB that that is something you expect and that that is fine to fail, et cetera? Yeah, so it's a great point. I've become a believer in my role. You just need to talk about it a lot. So people believe you if you talk about it. And I found the group CEO role is probably one of the most repetitive roles in the company. So I go around talking to various constituents within the organization, outside the organization. We want to be innovative. We explain what it actually is. We will get people together and talk about it. And we're fortunate we have a QBE ventures arm, and therefore they take a lead on talking about innovation and look for things that are innovative for us. And then you've got to have storytelling. You've got to talk about one came with this new idea, and it was this, or it changed this process and that. So. And people think, wow, he can do that. Why can't I also do change my process for the better? So I think it's about all of that. You can't have a formulaic process, look for an hour every Tuesday afternoon, and we're all going to sit there and innovate. It just doesn't work because some people think you've got to allocate time to it. I've got the time to innovate. Well, you have because you're thinking about things the whole time. And I often use the story, the number of people who probably go to home to their families and say, if QB only did this, and you think, let's do it. Maybe rather than go and tell your friends and family, we need to improve it. Why don't you come back to the office and do it? Let's change it. And it's all of that. How do you capture those thoughts? Because people are having them all the time. They can be watching sport on a Saturday afternoon and they think, oh, if only we did that. I'm trying to get people to capture that and do it. They're empowered to do it. We'll have a go at it. Of course, if they need help from other parts of the organization, I'm trying to ensure the organization steps up and helps them. So it's more in the culture rather than a guideline, how to innovate. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. I don't think that really works. Yeah, that's quite interesting. That was one of my first ahas when I took over more senior roles is often you think, I'm, I'm referring to this consistency of messaging, right? And often you say, well, I've said this once. I'm sure it's clear, right? But in your role, even more so, right? That it is about just repetition. Even when you think you've said it too many times, probably saying it one more time, it actually helps to you're signaling what's important for you at the end, right? I agree. And that's, I think you've hit a really important point. And that's why we've got our purpose, vision, and priorities, is we talk about those a lot. So it's only one purpose, one vision, including consistency and innovation, and six priorities. So people talk about them a lot. So I get it reflected back on me. This is what I've been doing on portfolio optimization. Or this is what the risk team really thinks about bringing the enterprise together. So people have taken the group purpose, vision, and priorities, and Build them out to their own division, team, function, sub-business, and so on. What is relevant to them? And you get this alignment. So people start talking about innovation down the organization. And then you help them achieve it. So this idea of the people and culture is really important. If we are truly empowering you, you'll put, I think you touched on the word failure. That's one of the hardest things because people are just nervous about doing something and then it not working. That's a really tough one to overcome. Again, you need the stories of I had a go at something and it failed and the world didn't collapse on top of me. We just accept it. And most people in their careers have done things that they failed at. So we've 
all got, as you get older, you, your list of potential, your list of failures is longer and longer and longer. And generally, assuming you're not failing all the time, most companies can put up with that. We're bizarre. We're a risk-taking business in terms of every single risk we take every day. And then we've got this fear of failure. Well, chances are, you know, we can write a policy today and have a 10 million, 20 million, 50 million dollar limit loss tomorrow because we're just unlucky. We write the policy and the loss happens tomorrow. And then we're worrying about really small potential costs of someone trying something and not working out. It's really disproportionate in how people think about it. Yeah. And you touched on part of the innovation is giving the people the freedom that to, to innovate and try new things. But uh, sometimes uh, also some more mundane uh, kind of enablers for innovation. I'm referring to like, just having budget for it, for example, right? So having, being able to spend money on driving some of the innovation. And I know from working with you in the past, I think some of the things you've done, for example, are having your central budget or small central budget to give some budget to the right side. Yeah, you're right. The budget process can be a massive constraint. So I am willing to finance my own central budget if that really becomes the issue. I don't know. I sometimes think the budget is used as a bit of an excuse for not doing stuff because most things don't cost an absolute fortune. If you're looking for the incremental innovation, it's not really a heavy expense item. And I don't know what our expense budget at QBE is, but it's billions. So it's not a small number, is it? But doing a small amount on innovation is not a major issue. So, um, yeah, I think the budget is sometimes an excuse. There's always, it's not as though we spend the money exactly in line with what we thought we we're going to do on January the 1st at the beginning of the year. So there's always room for it. And if people come up with the idea, then escalate it. And if this needs more budget, fine. If it's a good idea, why wouldn't you budget it? Why wouldn't you pay for it? The great beauty about the group CEO role, and um, one is you want to say yes to all these ideas. People are coming up with ideas, and as long as they've got some justification and some value at the, in the future, why on earth wouldn't you finance them? It's normally a capacity issue rather than a budget. Not as though we're short of budget. It's how many things can we do at the same time? Definitely. And you mentioned, obviously, innovation in terms of of new products covering new types of risks, which is often what the type of innovation people think most about. But how about innovation in terms of how the companies run the internal processes, the underwriting workflows? Is that an area where you're also focusing on? Oh, no, definitely. I mean, the new product is a headline issue, isn't it? So QBE launches this new product and everybody thinks, great, that's true innovation. And your bit is what people don't see. So how do we make ourselves more efficient? either dealing with the external world or dealing with ourselves. I mean, that's how I've sort of defined modernization within QBE. Modernization really is two things. We're either easy to do business with, external, internal, or easy to do business with, internal to internal. And that's what I see modernization. So innovation is definitely a key part of that. And of course, at this point in time, why not? I don't want to take us down a track. You may not want us to go, but the AI issue of how is that going to make the internal processes better? I think it's a very exciting potential time for the insurance industry that something's come in that can actually get through a lot of unstructured information relatively quickly, more quickly than human beings can. So that's going to be an exciting time, 2024 and beyond, I think. So for example, like a few months ago, I had Nigel Walsh from Google, and he also spends quite a lot of time with insurers boards in the topic of AI, and he put a good perspective. But like, how much do you talk about AI at the board level at QB? Is that something which is like, at the front of the agenda in terms of innovation? That's a great point. I think it's gone from sort of zero to 100 in no time at all. So you could talk at the end of 2022 and hardly at all talk about AI. By the time we end up 23, 
a lot. So it's remarkable how it's changed over a, a small period. And of course, the Gen AI coming in, because AI has been around a while. But that's just a major breakthrough. And of course, we've probably got board members using it to some extent themselves. So it's become accessible for everybody, and therefore everybody can see what it can do. So it's latter part of 2023 a lot. And a personal point of view, when I, I think it was my holiday in the middle of 23, I came back and think AI needs to be on one of the top three to four things on my personal agenda. This is potentially a major game changer for the industry. So I put it up there on the top four, the things I wanted to do and spend more time on going forwards. And it's still there. Now, whether it's one, two, three, four, I'm not really sure. I never know what to do with four equal ones, one rather than because people always want to know, is it fourth or third or second? I don't know. If it's in the top four, it's quite important to me. Yeah. Yeah, but it's true. So it, I think we're seeing a quite an interesting, almost like maturity curve of AI at the board level, right? Because I think it probably, as you said, two years ago, it was not a topic that was discussed. Probably one year ago, it just created awareness at the board level, but potentially not yet education. So most of the boards were just not familiar enough with what you know, specifically Gen AI was and like what does it enable. And I think what we've seen in the, for probably the last three, four months, it's a, it's a very steep learning curve at the board level of, okay, like now we understand Gen AI is what it can do for us. Okay, the next 2024 is, is then about putting it into action, right? Yeah, so it's a great point because in Q1 next year, we're doing all our board's education. So we're going to spend several hours with non-executive directors educating them on what we think it is, what we can really do with it, what we've already done. We've already got some up and running and working, and therefore what the potential is. So we're going through now into the first part of 2024, educating our non-executive directors and also our management to a great extent, because not all managements are the same place. We've got some people who are much further ahead than others. We're also trying to control it. We don't spend too long on this, but we need to control it. So we, we don't want to find we've got a thousand AI projects running at QB. We're trying to hone it down and have central control, which I think is working well. Yeah. So moving on from innovation, so you, you touched on a number of kind of priorities that underpin your vision. And, and one of them was people and culture, which is obviously a very broad topic. And I think I believe you also mentioned consistency in the way you treat people. Can you tell me a bit more about how you think about people and culture? I always think it's obviously it's the most important thing. Everybody sort of says it, but then you've already got to act it. There's no point in just saying, oh, yeah, people are our most important thing, blah, 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 and then you don't really believe it. So we're trying to have a culture which is safe to speak up. People can raise anything. It's open and it's transparent. We have good benefits for people, so they like what we're actually doing. We treat them well. We look after them when they have personal challenges and so on, which I think is a key part to it. We do internal succession better than we used to. So we don't keep recruiting externally at most senior roles. And certainly in my tenure, we've had three executive roles and they've all been internal roles. We recruited one externally, so there's been four, one external and three internal. So showing people that there actually is progression, talking quite a lot about that within the organization, trying to meet people's aspirations, I think is really important. And then having this inclusive approach. We're really focused on inclusion. And inclusion to us is everybody should be able to work and do well and thrive at QBE. Now, a lot of, a lot of companies, we do pulse surveys, employee surveys. We do it three times a year at the moment, and we get about 90% of people completing it, which is fantastically good, I think, because you can get survey fatigue, and we don't seem to. And we get good feedback. We 
stand out well against other financial services, and we really take the feedback seriously. So if something isn't working well enough, we tend to focus our resource on improving that. One of the most challenging things for me, Juan, is that, uh, not surprising, but at an organization like QBE, the top scoring location is quite a lot higher than the bottom one, or the top scoring functions higher than the bottom one. And as group CEO, I'm not trying to make one group happier than another group. So we're aiming to bring everybody up to where we should be, which is the best. So it's something we talk about a lot. Culture is never ending, always trying to improve upon it, always trying to get feedback from people, trying to get feedback externally. I really like it when people externally say, this is what your people are saying about the company, what it's like to be at the company. And that's really positive to me. So I do see the, uh, to say the people and culture are absolutely foundational to us, that if we get that bit right, we will ultimately have happy brokers, clients, other stakeholders. And if we get that bit right, we'll have a good financial return. So this is how it should work. And it seems to be a natural part of things. And would you be willing to share, like from those surveys, perhaps pick one which is not too confidential, but like what is one thing that where you kind of rank really high and one thing that it's identified as an area of development and at whatever level of detail you want to share it? So it's a great point. So the development one often is have people got the right tools to do their job. So this is a challenge. This goes back to systems, process. A lot of insurance companies like us, we've acquired a few companies. We've got lots of technology. We've got data technology. We've got old processes that haven't changed for a long period of time. We've got a lot of unstructured data coming in and dealing with that unstructured data is a challenge. I'm sort of, I'm like an ad for Saitor at this point. I just feel that I'm advertising your company and we've got a solution for you, Andrew, at this point. So we have all of that, which you'll see. So often people say we haven't really got the tools for the job. We've got out-of-date tech. We've got funky processes. We've got a lot of data rekeying. So that's one of them. And the scores lowly. I'm pleased that people have pride at working at QBE. So we score relatively positively on what people think about the priorities we have, the purpose, vision, and actually pride in working for the company. So I think that's one of the areas that's a bit more genetic, a bit more softer, perhaps, to have the tools to do the job. So those are two examples of probably the contrast of one positive and one less positive. The safety to speak up, we've been tracking more recently in that one, scoring going higher and higher and higher. So it's in a good place compared with other companies. The issue with these surveys, one which I often say, and people tell me that we're not perfect, so we can always improve. But all we can do is compare ourselves with everybody else and see where we are and see whether that feels about right. And really encourage our people to be open about how we can improve. And I'm keen on that. And it's all, as you said, it's all about the trend. All you can look at these are the indicators improving over time. Are you working on the right things? Are people seeing an improvement, right? Yeah. And, uh, and it often comes down to leadership. So I think leadership is really important. We've had one function within QB that's moved almost from bottom of the pack to top of the pack. And they've just sorted out the leadership, been much more open about what's going on, tried to involve people in it. And you can see what a difference it makes. When people feel they're really involved in what the company is doing, they feel much better about it. I've said, I've got an executive committee of 12 people. I'd love to have an executive committee of 13,000, really. Probably quite hard to all fit in a virtual room at the same time. And trying to get everybody to believe they contribute to the company's success at whatever level, whatever role anybody's doing, they're all contributing to the success of PBE. Now, to do that, they need to understand what are we trying to achieve? So we need good communication of backwards and forwards. It's not me explaining what we're trying to achieve. It's 
all of us trying to run so much fun strategy. I sound a bit evangelical at this point, but it's really a, an exciting thing of getting people involved. People stay with the company if they understand how they contribute and what are we trying to achieve. Yeah. And it's quite interesting to look at the area of development and strength that you picked when I asked you the question, because so you said one of the strengths is the pride of working at QB, one of the areas of development is getting the right tools, but almost that strength of pride of working at QB is almost the enabler to address any area of development, right? Is if you've got a team who is committed, proud of working at QB, then that team will be able to overcome any challenge, right? You're, I think it's a really good point. I've come across some people within QBE who told me they really enjoy working at QBE, the way we treat them and the empowerment and the authority they have, but the systems and processes are dreadful. <laughs> so it will counter it for a while. If we never improve the systems and process, I think people will get a bit fed up with it. So we need to address that. So you're right. In the first element, we should use the first element to address the second element. And we need to ensure, well, when it's a system working, you need to help us. Someone isn't going to come in and be able to solve it for you. We need your input into it. And I am trying to change the way we go about it. And you'll appreciate this. Often systems and process improvements were given to the tech and ops department and they were supposed to do it for you, but they can't do it without the person who's living with it day in, day out. So I'm trying to get when we're making changes. It's a coordinated approach for the person who actually lives with the problem, plus the people who actually support the change in the problem. And we're making more progress on that. That's great. So perhaps just touching on one or two other of your priorities you mentioned at the very beginning. So one of them, I believe you said, was kind of the optimization of the book. Yeah. Portfolio optimization, yeah. How we, how we optimize the portfolio, yeah. Optimize the portfolio, right? Just, I guess, well, as always, there will be some parts of the book which are less performing than the others. So the tricky question, does that go against the consistency principle or not? To some extent, it might. I mean, if we look at what we've been doing over the past year or two, we've looked at our property catastrophe book. And what we've found is we've got too much in certain areas. And what we're not trying to do is reduce it necessarily. We're trying to get it in better balance. So you're right. In doing that, we're going to have to give up some clients if we've got too much in a certain area and take another area. But in effect, if we're going to have the company giving a consistent result, which is good for clients ultimately, we just need to do it. And if you look at the history of QB's results over the past decade, we've had some pretty volatile results. We need to take that volatility out to give more consistency. So we're going to apply our consistent theory going forwards. So it did need some remediation in the balance. Similarly, you're right. If we're not relevant in a line of business or don't add anything, we can't just plow on because that's good for consistency because if somebody else does it, so if we find somebody else who can do it better than us, we should let them do it. So there is going to be some. You're right. It's not going to be perfectly consistent. We're just going to do everything, whether we make money or not make money from it. But the portfolio optimization is ideally doing it relatively quickly, getting the book in a better balance, and then we're away. Yeah. And I would, which I guess links to your growth. Well, and I want to offer you other priorities was about growth. And obviously, one way of optimizing the book, as you mentioned, is growing. So you can shrink it. That that's where one optimizing the other one is growing it in other areas to balance. I completely agree. That's been really important in the property book because the property book has shrunk as a proportion of our total, not necessarily to be written as property business, but because we've written everything else. We've let everything else grow more than we've let that grow. So you're right. Some of the property we have dropped during the past year or two, but we've also grown everything else as a proportionate falls. 
Exactly right. And then we get the book in better balance. Definitely. And then you mentioned being in lines of business or in products or in parts of the book where are like suboptimal from a size perspective. And I remember when I was like at Histos, we did look at some kind of a similar initiative, right? In terms of, okay, we've got really small books, almost regardless of whether they're performing well or not. At the end, very small books tend to take a disproportionate amount of management attention and distraction. So do you also agree that almost like an insurance company cannot afford to have like hundreds small pieces of book because digits are manageable? I completely agree with you. When you've got something that's not performing well, the amount of management time that goes into it is enormous. And if it's not performing well and you're not really that relevant in it, then you've got to start questioning why are you doing it? In my time, we've made a few changes with some of the books of business, but we need to continue to apply that. Become very vested to certain lines of business, and that's why we end up running them. Or we can convince ourselves we need to do it because it benefits something else, and that's often just not true. So I think all companies need to continue to look at that and really think through, are they relevant in it? Can they make the margin in it over the cycle or not? But you're right, your point's a good one because they just take up loads of time. You can find yourself spending a lot of time on very small parts of the business that really matter to the group at all. That's very interesting. Let's play a bit of a crystal ball exercise. So if we did another part of this podcast in a couple of years' time. So you've been the CEO of QB for a couple of years now, right? Just over two years, yeah. So like, let's imagine by the time you've been CEO for five years, what would give you the biggest pride? So I would like more stability of people. So we have stability of leadership. We'd see more of that internal succession continue. If anybody does leave, we're using internal succession more and more. I would like people to think of QB as consistent. So in other words, consistent in terms of appetite, ultimately giving consistent returns. So we've had a track record of some inconsistent returns over the past decade. So we have that. Consistent in terms of growth. So brokers can grow with us. We can grow with them. So I'd like to see that. And I would like the system and process to be more modern. Whatever modern means, that might be the use of AI. We're just easier to do business with. I mean, it'd be fantastic. We were the easiest insurance company to do business with in the world. We would get a lot more business. We can turn about business more quickly than anybody else. That would be fantastic. So if in three years' time, we can achieve all of those. Luckily, the list isn't too long. Then I would be a happy individual, as I'm sure everybody else at QB would be, as would all our stakeholders. So that would be a really positive place to be. Excellent. I mean, if you're easy to do business with, as you said, you will grow with your brokers. If it's easy business internally, you'll have kind of stability of people, leadership. Yeah, and more productivity would be very productive. Exactly. It's very exciting to see how the clarity of your vision, the clarity of your priorities, how you, I mean, this is the way we started the podcast, right? Is leadership is about or consistency of messaging, consistency of clarity of vision and just repeating kind of the priorities over and over again. And I think throughout this chat, it's been very, very clear your vision for QB, where you want to focus on, on the priority. So, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been wonderful. I'm sure everybody will really appreciate listening to it. I hope so, and It's good to spend time with you. Thanks for that. Cheers. Making Risk Flow is brought to you by Saitora. If you enjoy this podcast, consider subscribing to Making Risk Flow in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, so you never miss an episode. To find out more about Saitora, visit saitora.com. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.